0: You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past and present, and also recognise the area where FBI radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations people. This year's NADOC theme, Get Up, Stand Up, Show Up, encourages all of us to champion institutional, structural, collaborative, and cooperative change, as well as recognize and celebrate those who have long been driving the fight for First Nations justice. On All The Best This Week, two stories of resistance and the fight for change. Charlie King's parents came from different worlds. His dad was Irish, and his mother was a proud Gurindji woman. Their relationship was pretty unconventional in the 1920s, and it set Charlie up for a lifetime of standing up for what he believes in. Today, Charlie's daughter, Emma, carries on that legacy and calls out injustice whenever she sees it.
1: My dad was an incredible man, I must tell you. He came from a well-to-do family. Born in Corowa, in New South Wales, on the border. And his family were well-to-do. They owned the hotel. They owned a business. I think they own burly underwear. <laughs> I think they owned that. So they were pretty well-to-do and they were Irish people. And um, Dad had a sister, Myra, and he left home when he was 17. He wanted to be a bike rider. And he'd already shown good form in Corowa and Rutherglen, and Albury and those other places around there, that he was pretty good. So he got a chance to go to Melbourne and he joined the Sandringham Bike Club. This is about 1924. And whilst he was there, he met a man by the name of Bruce Small. Bruce had invented a bike, a Malvern Star bike. No gears, just a Malvern Star bike. And what he was looking for was someone to ride the bike around Australia and show just how good it was because he was a businessman entrepreneurially wanted to sell it and make it a really important bike that everyone wanted and he stumbled across my dad who was 19 at the time and he said Jack you're a good young bike rider would you be interested in riding this around Australia this Malvern Star bike that I've just invented and dad looked at it and he said why not <laughs> now he was away from home he wasn't living with his family and his friend Basil Nixon was another good bike rider was at the Sandringham club as well so he said to Basil, do you want to ride with me and we'll ride around Australia? And Basil, again, away from his family, said, yes, we will do it. So I've got it to They agreed to ride the bike around Australia in 1926, so we're going to leave Melbourne. What John Richard King didn't know, as he got on that Melbourne Star bike and headed north out of Melbourne towards Brisbane, it would be the last time he would see Melbourne. It would be the last time, was the last time he would see his family. He was on a journey that was going to take him to the Badlands, to here, to Darwin. (laughs) He 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 knew nothing about that. They just rode. So he and Basil left Melbourne on their ride. They headed towards Brisbane. The roads weren't too bad in 1926, so they made good time. They got to Brisbane. Basil never told Dad that he had a pistol in his pocket. He carried a pistol with him because he was afraid of Aboriginal people. He read somewhere they were cannibals. And they had particular liking for non-Aboriginal people if they got hold of them. So he had the bike and he's had the gun in his pocket, and they rode as far as they got to Brisbane. I'm going to pause there, and go across to my mum. Ningardi was her name. She was born on Limbanya Station. Her father, as I said, was the white policeman. Her mother was named Tom. I said, why, 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 am Tom, mum? And she told me because she worked like a man. But the real reason she didn't tell me is that she couldn't say her name. She wouldn't say her name in respect of her mother. So her name was Tom, and her dad's name was William. She was born there, and then one day uh, they arrived to take the children away, and they took her and her sister Maggie and her cousin Auntie Daisy Ruddick, and they put them on horses and they took them away from their people, and they brought them to the Victoria River. They put them on a boat along the Victoria River, out to the sea, around here to Darwin, and then probably here right behind me, they probably passed here on that motor launch with three kids in there, probably still shaking, probably still afraid, heading to Darwin, heading to an unknown future, down here to the wharf and taken from there to the Carlin compound. They might have the Anglican Church which is over there. Probably wasn't there then, but some couple of years later, that's where John Richard King stood with his bike that he was riding and a spare bike trying to raise money to continue his journey around Australia. She didn't know that. He didn't know that. So she was at the Carlin compound. Let's go back to Brisbane. John and Basil are there. They point their bikes west and they head towards Mount Isa. The roads are still not too bad. And then they get to Mount Isa, and now they've got to head north, as I said before, to the Badlands. No roads, just tracks. And they made pretty good time, even though it was pretty rough. And Basil, south of Catherine, fell off his bike, went head over heels, landed on the ground. The gun went off, shot him in the leg. So he had a bullet lodged in his thigh and his right leg. They're miles from anywhere. There's nothing they can do about it. He rode with the bullet in his leg from south of Catherine all the way to Darwin with Dad trying to help him all the way, trying to stop bleeding, trying to do all the things. By the time he got here, it had turned gangrenous. They just couldn't do anything here, so they put him on a boat and sent him back to where he came from, back to Melbourne to do some work on it. So John Richard King, my dad, is left here with a uh, bike, no money, no chance of going forward, can't go backwards. What can he do? So he tried desperately in front of the old Terminus Hotel to get someone to help him and raise some money. None of it was forthcoming. So in the end, this little Irishman with his red hair and his fair skin says, I'm going to have to work for a living. So he tried it. They were working on Miller at that time. They were digging the roads and so he worked there for them. Off came the shirt, working in the hot sun and then he got sunstroke pretty badly. And taken from there to the Royal Darwin Hospital. Meanwhile, Ningari, whose now name was Ruby Jane Smith, had left Carlin compound as she grew older and finished up at Royal Darwin Hospital. They get closer to each other. And she's in the hospital and she's the domestic. And she's given a choice of a few wards. Ruby, you can do that one, that one or that one. She said, I'll take that one. And that's the ward where John Richard King lay in a coma. And she went in and she started cleaning it. The walls are all white, the floor's white, the sheets are white, there's an Aboriginal woman with a white uniform on. John Richard King opens his eyes from the coma, sees her standing at the foot of the bed and says, my goodness, I've died and gone to heaven and all the angels are Aboriginal. LAUGHTER But he said he felt an instant attraction to her. She disputed that. (laughs) But they got to know one another and then Dad had to do uh, what he knew he had to do, was seek permission from Dr Cecil Cook, the protector of Aborigines, to allow Mum to go to the movies with him. And so once he got out of hospital, he got permission and they went to the old star village here and went to the movies and Dad said it was the most romantic night of his life. He said he knew then that this was going to be a great future. Mum said he went to sleep five minutes in and never said a word. (laughs) But love conquers all. Love conquers all. And in the end, he decided that they should get married. And so he wrote to the protector of Aborigines again and he said, I want to marry this woman. And at that time, ladies and gentlemen, the understanding is this. The non-Aboriginal person marries the Aboriginal woman... The deal is you don't take them back to their people. You don't take them back to their country. You don't encourage them to speak their language, so you try to cut the connection. That was the deal. That was the, that was the expectation, not for John Richard King. As soon as they got married, he had a plan. I will take her back home. I'll take her back to Catherine. I'm not sure where Limbanya Station is. I'm not sure where the or the Gringi people, but I know it's west. So they went back there and... Um, headed towards where mum's family were. They got some horses in Catherine. I think it took them about over three to four weeks before they found where mum's people were and they found Tom. She was still alive and she was so happy to see her daughter and the daughter was so happy to see the mother that they settled down and stayed there for about a year, lived on country with his grandmother and mum. And so mum always said to us later on in life, The reason I'm never bitter about that is because I went back to my family. I went back and I spent time and so did my husband and we sat down with our people and we've come out of that much better people. She said, when things happen in your life, don't get bitter, get better. Do you know what? I've never forgotten that. Don't get bitter, get better. And I try not to get bitter. I try to get better whenever I can when I think about things. So I was really proud of them. They got married and there's a huge king dynasty in the Northern Territory. So they had 11 children. Eight girls and three boys. The boys unfortunately didn't produce any king children. So the name King is going to end now, our name King. Unless, of course, my present daughter keeps her name, which she might, because maybe she's a bit rebellious. I don't know. (laughs) So I'm going to introduce her to you. Her name's Emma King, she's 13.
2: Hello. Yes, I do think I'll be keeping my name. So, the most rebellious thing I've done recently is actually tell this entire story when my dad told me not to. (laughs) So, when I was about seven, I was in a cafe and some Aboriginal people came in, and the people in the shop told them that they had to leave. They were not allowed in there. And I remember I was seven and I was so confused. Like, why are people that look like my dad, they look like my nana, why are they being told to leave for no reason? I was confused, but I also knew that it was wrong. And that helped me, that sort of pushed me onto this path of always, like, standing up for what I believe in and also, like, standing up for people who don't have a voice to, like, stand up for themselves. And... So, like, because of this, I'm usually the most outspoken person in my class. But that's because, like, whenever I see racism or sexism, I call it out. Like, it's become a reflex for me whenever I hear it. Like, that's just what I do. And so, just recently, a kid in my class made a racist joke. And my reflex, you know, called him out on it. And he said to me, I've been told this before... Why can't you just take a joke? And I was like, well, yeah, I can take a joke. That wasn't a joke. You're dehumanising Aboriginal people. It's different. It's not funny. Sometimes when I'm talking to adults about things like sexism or racism, they'll tell me that we live in Australia, like we live in a first world country. That's not needed here. Like racial activism, feminism that's not necessary here because we all have the same rights but it is needed here as a 13-year-old aboriginal girl i can tell you that sexism and racism does exist here i see it like when i'm driving down the street and i see a car with the c u on the nt sticker on the back of it i'm reminded that i live in a society that accepts sexism and it accepts racism So my dad didn't want me to tell this story because he thought I might become, like, more of a target at school. But that's not in my nature to, like, be quiet about these sorts of things. Like, I have to speak up about it. I just have to, you know? And that comes from my nana and pop, and that comes from my mum, and it comes from my dad, who spent his life doing that. (laughs)
0: That story was told by Charlie and Emma King. It was produced by Kylie Stevenson. Charlie and Emma first told this story at Spun Stories, a live storytelling event in Darwin, showcasing extraordinary stories from the Northern Territory. Spun also has a podcast. To listen, search Spun Stories wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. All the Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com forward slash pitch. Up next, Gomeroy writer Alison Whitaker. Reading a piece from Durumble South Sea Islander journalist Amy Maguire on solidarity between First Nations people on this continent and in Palestine.
3: Yama, I'm Alison Whitaker. I'm a Gomorrah woman. I'm recording this for the Sunday paper on Gadigal and Mongol country, over which sovereignty was never ceded and on which I'm honoured to be a guest. I acknowledge Gadigal and Wongal elders and ancestors who continue to hold sovereignty over this place. It's my honour to bring you Amy McGuire's words today. Amy McGuire, our shared resistance. I always say that I grew up in my traditional homelands, Durumble country and central Queensland, but that is not entirely true. I have only ever seen the silhouettes of the mountains from the highway. I am of the Kuin Mabara clan of the Durumbo Nation, and the land of my ancestors is Shoalwater Bay, which for a long time has been the site of the largest war games in this part of the world. Every two years, the US and Australia, as well as other countries like Canada and Japan, take part in large-scale wargaming. Helicopters fill the sky, army trucks take over the highway, and American soldiers in plain clothes march the streets on their days off. It is called Talisman Sabre. These war games are largely seen as an oddity or a positive intervention to the media who report on it, as well as the public in Rockhampton. In 2019, the ABC opened their story on the war games. Australian, US and Japanese military forces have successfully landed the largest beach Australian-led invasion since World War II. Occasionally, anti-war protesters come in, but for the most part, the games are held without controversy, and then the dust settles for the next two years. In 2017, there was a major uproar when the Australian Department of Defence tried to compulsorily acquire land in Shoalwater Bay for the training of Singaporean military troops. Some of these farming and pastoral families have been on their land for 158 years, the same time as the original invasions that decimated the Durumble Nation, my own ancestors have moved them off-country. The Department of Defence were forced to backflip, and those families kept their land their own ancestors had originally stolen or negotiated compensation. In the media coverage, there was so little reflection on the irony of the farmers' fears, of the fact that this land was not their own, that their access to this country had been due to the attempted genocide of my people. Today, Durrumbil people do have access to some of this country. My own relatives do go there to fish and hunt, but this right is always conditional. I myself have never been to Shoalwater Bay, it is less than 30 minutes' drive from the town I grew up in. These original invasions into Durrumbul homelands and into the homelands of Aboriginal nations all across the country was our own Nakba, just like our Palestinian siblings, and we have been denied the right to live and care for our country and our lands. Land justice is at the heart of our every protest because country is intimately entwined with our well-being and our future. Not only do we need country, but country needs us. We have been the caretakers of country for tens of thousands of years. The invasions ended, but settler colonialism continued, and the very purpose of it, to eliminate the native, is still at the very core of the project there are continual attempts to erase Indigenous presence from our own lands. We see this in the justice system, where Aboriginal people are warehoused and hidden away, cordoned off from country into contained spaces where they become less than human. We see this in the child protection system, where Aboriginal children are ripped from their families and communities and then end up in detention centres. We see this in the education system, where for too long we were told lies about the foundations of the lucky country. We see this in the health system, where Aboriginal people are told that we're the problems and that ill health is a result of lifestyle or choices and not the brutal violence that convinced a public of the inevitability of our early deaths. We see it in the industries that we are told will provide us employment, the mining industry, For which blackfellas are ripped from our traditional lands in exchange for pennies. Where these lands are poisoned for generations. Where our sacred sites are destroyed with barely any penalty or peep. All of this violence is about separating us from country. And preventing our return. By making this country sick. You are making us sick. In 1948, Palestinian refugees were denied their right to return to their country after the Nakba, during which they were forcibly displaced and massacred to make way for an Israeli state. Since then, they have continually been denied this right, as Israel takes more and more land away by brutal force, displacing more people, eliminating Palestinian presence from Palestinian lands. They cordon Palestinians off into jails and detention centres and have placed a stranglehold on Gaza so that it is now said to be the largest open-air prison in the world. They continue to steal land through encroaching settlements into occupied Palestine. They displace Palestinians inside Israel, as we most recently saw, in forced evictions in Sheikh Jarrah and other suburbs, Unlike Australia, which hides its violence for the most part, the sheer brutality of Israeli force is on full display for the world to see. And yet, Palestinians are told that this is a two sides debate in which they are equally responsible. The media says it isn't apartheid, it isn't a genocide, it isn't theft, that it is complex. For Aboriginal people looking at Palestine, this is not complex. It is the story we know all too well. I first realised the links between the two situations, not by seeing the violence, but by hearing the advocacy and voices of Palestinian people here, on occupied Aboriginal lands. I realised our similarities. Through the words of Palestinian writers Randa Abdel-Fattah, Samar Sabawi, Sarah Saleh, Janine Kalik, Jamal Nabulsi, and so many more. It wasn't in seeing the violence that I saw our connections, but in our shared resistances. Resistance that is predicated on our right to return, to live, and to breathe freely on our traditional lands. We aren't similar only because we are both indigenous populations living in settler colonial societies, but because we view country in the same way. We both see country as intrinsically connected to our being. Sovereignty is at the heart of both of our protests, and it is why even when there seems to be no hope, we are still able to resist. Regardless of media blackouts, regardless of the representation or violence so readily deployed, we know that sovereignty has never been ceded. Not over our lands. Not over our bodies. Not over our lives.
0: That was Our Shared Resistance, an essay from Durrumbull South Sea Islander journalist Amy Maguire read by Gomorrah writer, Alison Whittaker. Amy first wrote this piece for the Sunday paper, an independent publication centering Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and Palestinian people working to resist settler colonial occupation. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All The Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal Land, in association with SIN and 3RRR, on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonwurrung Lands, and C, on Arunda and Warumungu Lands. The All The Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Timothy Nguyen is our social media producer, and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can listen back to our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.